0: Antimatter and neutrinos. Now it would help if you can recall the principle of the conservation of energy and Fleming's left hand motor rule. You should be familiar with the units for charge, coulomb, and the potential difference, that is the volt. The learning objectives in this chapter involve uh, looking at a unit of energy called the electron volt or EV, you will learn about the discovery and properties of antimatter and this chapter kind of builds on what you would have already learned about beta decay in the previous chapter which include the discovery and properties of the neutrinos the family of the fundamental particles known as leptons will also be introduced the big bang theory says that when matter was created in the very early universe an equal amount of antimatter was also created. Later, matter and antimatter should have recombined, annihilating each other in a process of mutual destruction that left only radiation. Though the universe is dominated by radiation, there is obviously some matter left over. There is very little sign of any antimatter. An initial imbalance just 1 in 10 billion must have tipped the scales in favor of matter, without which we would not be here. In theory, antimatter is a perfectly symmetrical reflection of matter. Each ordinary matter particle has its antimatter equivalent with identical mass, but other properties such as charge reversed. But the symmetry cannot be perfect. There must be an asymmetry that explains why the universe is made of matter rather than antimatter or just radiation. Particles called neutrinos may help us to solve this puzzle. Neutrinos come in three different types or flavors and can change from one flavor to another and back again. This oscillation um, across flavors seems to happen at a different rate in neutrinos Compared to antineutrinos. Unfortunately, neutrinos are difficult to study. They are the most abundant particle in the universe. And around 100 trillion, that is 10 raised to the power 14, pass through you each second. But they rarely interact with anything. They interact so rarely, in fact, that if you live to be 100, only one neutrino on average, will interact with an atom in your body in that time. That interaction might cause a tiny flash of light. That is why neutrino telescopes are in very dark places, well away from the other sources of light or radiation. The detectors at the Ice Cube Laboratory at the South Pole are buried between 1 and 2.5 kilometers deep in the ice sheet while they watch for the rare events that might explain how the universe evolved. Mass and Energy The creation of particles and antiparticles was first observed in 1933 in photographs of the tracks left by cosmic rays, high-energy particles from space. We now know that matter and antimatter pairs of particles can be created when the energy of radiation is high enough. This conversion of energy into mass and back again was predicted by Albert Einstein. The principle of conservation of energy states that the total energy of a closed system is a constant. In other words, energy is not created or destroyed. Einstein showed that this idea had to be broadened to include mass. The combined mass and energy in any system is conserved, but energy and mass may be converted from one to the other. This conversion of mass to energy powers radioactivity and nuclear fission. Einstein's theory gave us the physics equation that nearly everyone knows that is e equals mc squared or in words the energy transferred equals the mass difference multiplied by the speed of light squared where the unit of mass is in kilogram the unit of speed of light is meter per second and the unit of energy is joule einstein equation applies to all mass and energy but it has particularly important consequences in nuclear physics such as the fusion reaction Now if we measured the combined mass of the particles on the right hand side of the equation of the fusion reaction, we would find that it is less than that of the left hand side. In other words, there is less mass after the reaction than there was before. This mass difference is the M in the E equals MC squared formula. It has been transferred to other forms of energy, since C the speed of light is 3.0 into 10 to the power 8 meters per second. C squared equals 9.0 into 10 to the power 16 meters squared per second squared. A small, mass in, a small mass difference in kilograms leads to a large amount of energy in joules. On the atomic scale, the joule and kilogram are rather large units to use. In the reaction above, The mass difference is 7.47 into 10 to the power minus 31 kilograms and the energy released is 6.72 into 10 to the power minus 14 joules. Very small numbers that are awkward to work with. So we measure mass in terms of atomic mass unit U which was defined earlier. So U equals 1.661 into 10 to the power minus 27 kilograms. We also need to define an energy unit that is more appropriate for the scale. The electron volt. The unit of energy used in atomic and nuclear physics is the electron volt, EV. One electron volt is the amount of energy gained by an electron as it accelerates through a potential difference of one volt. 1 joule of energy would be transferred by 1 coulomb of charge moving through a potential difference of 1 volt. So 1 electron volts per joule is in the same ratio as the charge of 1 electrons which is 1.6 into 10 to the power minus 19. So 1 electron volts equals 1.6 into 10 to the power minus 19 joules. Conversely, 1 Joule equals 1 divided by 1.60 into 10 to the power minus 19 Joules equals 6.25 into 10 to the power 18 electron volts. The energy acquired by particles in accelerators is usually given in electron volts. The cathode rate tubes used by Thomson achieved electron energies of around 1 kilo electron volt or 1 into 10 to the power 3 electron volts. The Large Hadron Collider, LHC, at CERN in Geneva was refitted in 2015 and achieved energies of 13 tera electron volts. One tera electron volt is 1 into 10 to the power 12 electron volts. Even though this is a very large energy for a particle, it is still only a small fraction of a joule. So 1 tera electron volts equals 1 into 10 to the power 12 electron volts which when converted into joules gives us 1 into 10 to the power 12 multiplied by 1.6 into 10 to the power minus 19 joules which when simplified gives us 1.6 into 10 to the power minus 7 joules. So put this into perspective 13 tera electron volts equals 13 into 1.6 into 10 to the power minus 7 joules which is just over 2 microjoules, about enough energy to lift an apple by 2 micrometres. That is not much on an everyday scale, but is a huge amount of energy for a single particle collision. Measuring mass in terms of the electron volt Because mass can be transferred into other forms of energy, we can use the unit of energy to measure mass, since... E equals mass multiplied by speed of light squared, then mass is equal to E divided by c squared. We can use the unit of mega electron volt per speed of light squared c squared to measure the mass of small particles. On this scale, the mass of an electron is 0.511 mega electron volt per c squared. And one atomic mass unit or 1U is 931.5 mega electron volt per c squared. Now, quick summary of key ideas in this section mass and energy can be converted to each other according to the formula E equals delta m c squared. The energy in the atomic and subatomic processes is measured in the unit electron volt. One electron volt equals. into 10 to the power minus 19 joules. The mass of the subatomic particles can be expressed in the unit MeV per c squared. Now, here are some questions for you to consider. Question number 1. An electron that is accelerated by a particular X ray tube gains an energy of 100 kilo electron volts. Convert this energy to joules. Question number 2. The energy released by a nuclear fission reaction is around 200 mega electron volts. The average household in the USA uses 11,600 kilowatt hour of electricity per year. One kilowatt hour means 1,000 joules of energy every second for an hour. Question A How many nuclear reactions are needed to supply that amount of electricity? Now, the mass of uranium used in each reaction is approximately 236u. What mass of uranium is needed in kilograms to fuel the average American family for one year? Why is that an underestimate? Question number three. The most energetic cosmic ray ever detected, probably a photon traveling at almost the speed of the light, was recorded in Utah in 1991. It came as a shock to physicists who christened it as the OMG particle. Its energy was estimated to be approximately 3 into 10 to the power 20 electron volts. Question A. How much energy in joules is that? Question B. Compare it to an everyday energy, like the kinetic energy of a moving object, or the work done in lifting or pushing something. Kinetic energy is half mv squared and work done is force times distance move. Why did the OMG particle cause such a shock? Now here is a stretch and question challenges, couple of them. First, a muon is a particle similar to the electron, but heavier. Its mass is 106 mega electron volts per c squared. What is this in kilograms? And b, what is this in terms of the atomic mass unit? Question number 5. The reaction between hydrogen and oxygen is one of the most energetic chemical reactions there is. Releasing about 0.5 into 10 to the power minus 18 joules every time one oxygen atom reacts with a hydrogen molecule to form a water molecule. Compare the 0.5 into 10 to the power minus 18 joules to the energy released by the fission of the uranium. 235U plus N gives 93NB plus 141PR plus 2N, which is about 200 mega electron volts per reaction. And B, compare the 0.5 into 10 to the power minus 18 joules to the energy released by the nuclear fusion of hydrogen to helium. For 11H, uh, it kind of uh, goes into converts into 242He two, two plus 2E plus plus 2 neutrinos plus energy, which is about 26 followed into 10 to the power 6 electron volts. If this is to be a fair comparison, we ought to take into account the mass of each fuel. Using the following data, find the energy released per kilogram of the fuel used. Mass of the hydrogen molecule is 3.35 into 10 to the power minus 27 kilograms. Mass of the hydrogen atom is 1.67 into 10 to the power minus 27 kilograms. Mass of an oxygen atom is 16 U. Mass of a neutron is 940 MeV per mega electron volts per C squared. Mass of a uranium U35 iron, U235 uh, U- 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 atom is 235 U. And 1 U is one atomic mass unit is 931.5 MeV mega electron volts per C squared. Antimatter. It was the British theoretical physicist Paul Dirac who first predicted the existence of antimatter. He realized in 1928 that his equation describing the behavior of an electron would work equally well if some quantities such as charge had the opposite sign. He predicted the existence of a particle with exactly the same mass as the electron but with a positive charge, now called positron. Indeed, he suggested that all particles must have a mirror image, twin, a particle of identical mass, but opposite charge. Dirac called these antiparticles. Dirac was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics at the age of 31 for his work on relativistic quantum physics, which predicted the existence of antimatter. Dirac's prediction was based on the underlying symmetry of his mathematics. Predicting the existence of antimatter was a bold step. But Dirac was justified when the positron, a positive electron, was discovered shortly afterwards by Carl Anderson. In 1932, Anderson was observing tracks made by cosmic rays, high-energy particles from space, He was able to see the tracks left by high-energy electrons using a cloud chamber. Anderson used a strong magnetic field to curve the path of these electrons. He detected tracks that were identical to those made by an electron moving down through the atmosphere, except that they curved in the opposite direction. These were either electrons moving upwards through the apparatus or anti-electrons of equal mass but carrying a positive charge, moving downwards through the apparatus. Anderson put a thin piece of lead across the middle of his apparatus. This would show which way these particles were moving. Since a particle would slow down after passing through the lead and the curvature of the track would be greater, Anderson found that the particles were indeed moving down through the chamber. He had the first proof of existence of the positron. Antimatter only makes rare and rather fleeting appearances in our universe. It can occur where there is sufficient radiation energy, perhaps as a result of cosmic ray collisions, or even as a result of electric discharges in thunderstorms. Positrons can be emitted by some radioactive isotopes many of which are created artificially in nuclear reactors. These isotopes which emit positive beta particles or beta plus can be useful in medicine. Other examples of antimatter such as antiprotons and antineutrons have been observed. Although antimatter atoms of hydrogen and helium have been created at CERN, none have been found to occur naturally, in cosmic rays for example. Now here are some questions. Sketch a circle to represent the cloud chamber shown in the figure. Suppose there is a magnetic field acting into the plane of your drawing. Sketch the path that would be taken in each case by first, a positron moving from the left to the right. Label this as A. An electron moving from left to right. Label this as B. A proton moving from left to right. Label this C and a neutron moving from left to right. Label this D. In each case, add labeled rows to show the direction of the force on the particle. See, remember the Fleming's left-hand rule. Fleming's left-hand rule, which can be used to determine the way that charged particles moved in a magnetic field. In your first finger, magnetic flux field points from the magnetic north to the south. Your second finger, the current, it points in the direction that a positive charge is moving and then your thumb will show the direction of the force and so the deflection of the charged particle. You have to point your second finger in the opposite direction if it is a negatively charged particle. Next question. In 2011, the antimatter team at CERN reported keeping an anti-hydrogen atom for one Thousand seconds. Why is this a difficult thing to do? Annihilation and photons. When a particle meets its own antiparticle, they annihilate each other. The mass of the two particles is entirely transferred to the electromagnetic radiation. So, for example, when a positron and an electron meet, they annihilate each other. Two identical gamma photons of energy 511 kilo electron volts are emitted in the opposite directions. The electromagnetic radiation is emitted as two or more packets of electromagnetic energy known as photons. The idea that electromagnetic radiation can be emitted and absorbed in discrete packets of energy rather than as a continuous wave was developed in the early years of the 20th century to explain phenomena such as the photoelectric effect. A photon can be pictured as a particle. Although it has no mass, it has energy and momentum. The energy of the photon, capital E, is proportional to the frequency f of the radiation. So E is directly proportional to F or E equals a product of H times F where the constant small letter H is known as Planck's constant and it is equal to 6.63 into 10 to the power minus 34 joule seconds to the three significant figures. In everyday terms, the amount of energy transferred by a single photon is very small ranging from a few nanoelectron volts for a photon from the radio region of the spectrum to mega-electron volts for a gamma photon. Using the wave formula C equals F lambda, so that F equals C by lambda, the, the energy of a photon can be written as E equals HC divided by lambda. Now let us look at a couple of worked examples. The energy of a photon of microwave radiation of frequency f equals 100 GHz is E equals hc by lambda. So 6.63 into 10 to the power minus 34 into 100 into 10 to the power 9 which when simplified gives us 0.414 mega electron volt. Let's look at another example. The shortest wavelength that can be directly observed by the human eye is about 400 nanometer. A photon from this part of the spectrum, violet visible light, has an energy of E equals hc by lambda equals 6.63 into 10 to the power minus 34 multiplied by 3 times 10 to the power 8 divided by 400 into 10 to the power 9 which when simplified gives us 4.97 into 10 to the power minus 19 joules which when converted into electron volts, gives us 3.1 electron volt to two significant figures. Now we have seen that the energy of photons that arise from the annihilation of an electron and a positron is very much greater than a few electron volts. If the electron and positron are moving slowly relative to each other when they meet, there is no significant kinetic energy to take into account. The amount of energy released by the annihilation can be calculated from E equals mc squared, where m, the change in mass, which is twice the mass of an electron, equals 2 times 9.1 into 10 to the power minus 31 kilogram. Now, this gives us E equals mc squared equals 1.64 into 10 to the power minus 13 joules or 1.02 mega electron volts. A photon carries momentum as well as energy. Assuming the electron and positron have negligible momentum before the reaction, there must be no overall momentum after the annihilation by the principle of conservation of momentum. The energy is shared exactly between two photons, which are emitted in opposite directions. Each photon has an energy of 511 kilo electron volts. These are gamma photons. If the electron and positron were to meet at high speed. The extra kinetic energy can cause other particles to be created. The tunnel at CERN that now houses the Large Hadron Collider, LHC, previously held the Large Electron-Positron Collider or the LEP. The large refers to the collider, not the electron or the hadron. Electrons and positrons were accelerated in opposite directions until they were made to collide. At these energies, when the electron and positron annihilate each other, many particles are created. In the example that we discussed earlier, jets of short lived charged particles are created, as well as a gamma ray with enough energy to produce another electron positron pair. This last process is known as pair production. Now let us look at the key ideas in this section. Every particle has an antiparticle. It's antimatter equivalent with equal mass but opposite charge. Electromagnetic radiation has a particle nature. These particles are called photons. They have zero mass. The energy E Of a photon is equal to hf, where h is the Planck constant and f is the frequency of the radiation. When a particle meets its antiparticle, they annihilate each other, releasing the energy as two or more photons of gamma radiation. Let's look at some questions. Calculate the energy of a photon of blue light with a wavelength of 480 nanometers. When an electron and a positron annihilate each other, the photons each have energy of 511 kilo electron volts. What is the frequency of these photons? What is their wavelength? Small high-powered laser pointers are now available, some with a range of as much as 100 miles. Because these laser beams do not divert much, they are potentially damaging to the eye, which is particularly sensitive to green light. One of these green lasers emits light of wavelength 532 nanometer and can achieve a beam intensity, that is power per unit area, of 50 microwatts per centimeter square at a distance of 100 meter. Question A What is the frequency of the green laser light? Question B What is the energy of a photon of this light? Give your answer in joule and in electron volt. And then here is a stretch and challenge question. How many photons per second will pass through one cm square at a distance of 100 meter? Now let us look at an assignment in which we can think about investigating the positron emission tomography scanning. Matter antimeter annihilation is used in medical imaging technique of positron emission tomography (PET) scanning. A radioactive isotope such as carbon-11 which emits positrons is injected into the body. When the positron is emitted, it only travels about one millimeter in the body before it meets with an electron and is annihilated. Because two gamma rays are emitted in opposite directions, it is relatively easy to locate the exact position of the radioactive isotopes. This PET technique using carbon 11 as a positron emitter is used in brain imaging. The patient inhales a small dose of carbon monoxide, labeled with carbon-11. Carbon monoxide molecules attach themselves to the hemoglobin in the red blood cells and are transported around the body. When the carbon-11 decays, it reveals areas of high blood flow, which correspond to active regions of the brain. PET scans can show which areas are busy when the patient is reading, listening, or just sitting with their eyes closed. Questions. Find an interesting piece of research on the internet involving the use of PET scanning in medicine. Searching for terms such as PET, positron emission, psychology, and neuroscience research will turn up a lot of possibilities. Prepare a short report to explain your research. You should cover the following points in your report. Describe the aim and the method of the research. Describe how and why PET scanning is used and then discuss the conclusions. Pair production. Annihilation is the conversion of matter to radiation. The opposite process where matter is created from radiation is referred to as pair production. In this process, electromagnetic energy in the form of a gamma photon is converted into a particle-antiparticle pair. There are always two particles created. One is conventional matter and the other is its antimatter opposite. This means that charge is conserved, since before the event, there is only radiation which carries no charge and after the pair production, there are always two particles of opposite charge, so the total charge is still zero. A gamma ray photon has to have a minimum energy of 1.02 mega electron volt before it can create an electron-positron pair. This is because the mass of the pair has an energy equivalence of 1.02 mega electron volts. If the radiation had more energy than this, the surplus energy would appear as kinetic energy carried by the positron and the electron. Particle detector tracks of electron-positron pairs with different amounts of kinetic energy are shown in the upper and lower parts of the figure 2 in section 3.1. Matter-antimatter pairs can also be produced in high-energy particle collisions. In 1955, the first antinucleon was discovered at the Berkeley Accelerator which could accelerate protons up to energies of 6 giga electron volts and smash them into protons in a fixed target. The collision produced antiprotons, which are denoted by a bar on the top of the small letter B or P bar. Um, in the reaction, P plus P gives P plus P plus P plus P bar. This is a really remarkable reaction. By colliding two protons together, we have produced an extra proton and an antiproton. If this happened when two snooker balls collided, the table would very soon fill up with two extra balls. The extra mass needed to create the proton-antiproton pair has come from the kinetic energy of the initial protons. The minimum energy required to do this is 2 times the mass of proton multiplied by the speed of light square. That is, minimum energy equals 2 times mp multiplied by c square equals 3.0066 into 10 to the power minus joules, or which equals to 1.9 giga electron volts. A year later, the antineutron was produced by antiproton and proton collision. So p bar plus p gives an n plus n bar. The mass of a particle is always identical to the mass of its antiparticle but other properties such as charge are reversed in sign. A neutron has no charge, so it might seem that the neutron and antineutron are the same. This is not the case. Even though a neutron has zero charge, it does have magnetic properties. These are equal in magnitude, but opposite in direction to that of an antineutron. The neutron has an internal structure, as you will see in the following chapter. It is made up of three quarks, the antineutron is composed of three anti-quarks. So the key idea in this section is a particle antiparticle pair may form radiation if the energy of the photon is high enough that is greater than two times mc squared. Couple of questions for you to try out on this se- in the session. Um, the minimum gamma ray photon energy to create an electron positron pair is 1.02 mega electron volts. What is the frequency of such a photon? Question number two. Particles are always created in pairs. For example, an electron and a positron. The creation of a single electron has never been seen through this. Would take only half as much energy. Why is this? Neutrinos Neutrinos are the most numerous particles in the universe. They outnumber the protons and neutrons of ordinary matter by a factor of 1 to the power raised 10 to the power minus 9. Neutrinos created at the time of the Big Bang still permeate the universe. There are about 100 or so of them in each cubic centimeter of space. Neutrinos are also emitted by radioactive nuclei from nuclear reactions. The earth is bathed in neutrinos from the sun. Every second, about 60,000 million solar neutrinos pass through every square centimeter of the earth's surface. Despite this, neutrinos are extremely difficult to detect. They are not charged so they do not feel electrostatic attraction or repulsion. Their mass is extremely small, so they are little affected by gravity. They are also unaffected by the strong nuclear force, so interact with other particles only through weak interaction. But this acts only over a very short range, about 10 to the power minus 18 meters. So neutrinos rarely interact with the other matter at all. The vast majority of neutrinos that strike the earth pass straight through with no deviation. Experiments that are looking for neutrinos often use large tanks of water, usually placed deep underground, surrounded by sensitive light detectors. They are looking for the very occasional flash of the light that signifies, for example, that a neutrino has interacted with a neutron. The existence of the neutrino was first predicted by Wolfgang Pauli in 1930. At the time, physicists were struggling with a problem in understanding beta radiation. Beta particles are fast-moving electrons emitted by the nuclei of some radioactive atoms. Unlike alpha particles, which are emitted with a well-defined energy, betas are emitted with a range of energies. Beta particle emission seem to contravene the principle of the conservation of energy. If a certain amount of energy is transferred by each radioactive decay, why did the emitted beta particle have a range of possible energies? Pauli suggested that another particle, the neutrino, is also emitted in beta decay. The neutrino carries away the balance of the energy so that the total energy of the decay is always constant. The neutrino is represented by the symbol small v subscript small e. The subscript e stands for the electron and these neutrinos are more properly referred to as electron neutrinos. The neutrino also has its antiparticle, the antineutrino, which is written as v bar through the subscript e. It is this antineutrino that is emitted during the beta decay, so Azx A, then az plus 1y plus 0 minus 1e plus v bar e. Neutrinos and antineutrinos differ in property called spin. Their spins are equal but in opposite directions. Alpha particles from a given unstable nucleus are emitted along with a small number of discrete energy values. The lower energy alphas are accompanied by a gamma photon. couple of questions. Read Pauli's letter that is given in the figure 13. Which of the Pauli's prediction about the neutrino proved to be correct? Where do we believe he was mistaken? Next question. Is it possible that the neutrino is its own antiparticle? Why is that possible for a neutrino and not for an electron? Now let's look at the experimental evidence for neutrinos. It was 26 years before Pauli's courageous proposition could be confirmed. The problem is that the neutrinos are so difficult to detect. On average, a neutrino emitted from a beta decay will pass through a light year's thickness of lead and only interact once. The best way of finding a few of these elusive particles is to look in a place where there is a huge number of them. In 1956, Clyde Cowan and Frederick Reines set up their apparatus next to the Savannah River nuclear reactor in the USA. The neutrino flux was expected to be 10 to the power 13 neutrinos per second through each square centimeter per centimeter squared. Cowan and Reines were actually looking for antineutrinos that are emitted from a beta-minus decay. In this decay, a neutron, N, decays into a proton, P, and an electron, E-, minus. an antineutrino is also emitted. The decay can be written as N is distributed into P plus E minus plus V bar E. The experiment was designed to look for subsequent reaction of the antineutrino with a proton, P plus V bar E, results in N plus E plus where the e to the subscript plus is a positron. Cowan and Rains use large tanks of liquid scintillator with a high hydrogen content. The liquid also contained cadmium compound. The idea was that the positron would meet an electron and be annihilated almost immediately, releasing two gamma rays which would cause a prompt flash of light in the scintillator. A short but predictable time later the neutron would be absorbed by the cadmium and would emit a gamma ray, which would lead to another flash of light. The neutrino would reveal itself by the right coincidences between the flashes of lights. After three years of experiments, Cohen and Raines were able to telegraph Pauli to say that they had found the neutrino. The question for you here is, why did the liquid scintillators in the kowan and Rains experiment need a high hydrogen content? Number two, why was the experiment installed next to a nuclear reactor? Now the search still goes on. On the current neutrino detection experiment is at the Super Kamiokande, kande, one kilometer below ground in Japan. It is designed to detract neutrinos from the sun. We know that. There should be a neutrino flux from the sun caused by nuclear reactions deep within the solar core. These reactions are well understood and the theory is in excellent agreement with measurements, except for one thing. The problem was that more than half of the solar neutrinos seemed to disappear on their way to Earth. The detector consists of 50,000 tons of ultra-pure water, surrounded by 11,000 highly sensitive light detectors. These are looking for the flash of light that comes when an electron hurtles away at a high speed after being hit by a neutrino. Even in such a large tank of water, this is a rare event. The latest results from the Super Cameo and elsewhere confirm that the solar neutrinos do not go missing. Rather, they change from one flavor of neutrino. To another on the way to earth. This oscillation implies that neutrinos do have some mass, however small. So the key ideas in this section are the neutrino and its antiparticle. The antineutrino are particles that carry no charge and have very small mass. Neutrinos interact with other particles only very rarely via the weak force Pauli predicted the existence of neutrino by studying the energy released in beta decay. The lepton family. Pauli's prediction of the neutrino and its subsequent discovery meant that there were now four subatomic particles known to physics. The other three being the electron, the proton, and the neutron. Dirac's work on antimatter instantly doubled this to 8. This was enough to explain the atomic and nuclear phenomena that were known at the time. However, many more new particles were found in the next few years. Muons In the days before the big accelerators, such as the LHC at CERN, the way to study particle physics was to fly a balloon. High in the atmosphere, there is a greater flux of cosmic rays. High-energy particles, such as protons and penetrating gamma rays, collide with atoms of hydrogen and oxygen in their highest reaches of the atmosphere, sending a shower of particles towards the Earth. The muon was detected in these cosmic ray showers. Anderson photographed some unusual tracks in his cloud chambers and calculated the charge-to-mass ratio as 8.8 into 10 to the power 8 coulombs per kilogram. This was smaller than the same ratio for the electron and very much higher than the value for the proton. In fact, the muon turned out to have exactly the same charge as an electron, 1.6 into 10 to the power minus 19 coulombs, but its mass was 200 times greater. This came as a shock to physicists who could not see why the electron needed a big brother. Nuclear physicist Isador Rabai was reputedly in a restaurant when he heard of the muon's discovery. Who ordered that? He demanded. The muon is a heavier version of the electron. It has exactly the same charge and like the electron, it is a fundamental particle, meaning it is without any internal structure. However, as well as its mass of 200 times the electron's mass, There is another difference. The muon is unstable. With an average lifetime of 2.2 into 10 to the power minus six seconds or 2.2 microseconds. A muon decays very quickly, typically into an electron and two neutrinos. So a muon equals electron plus neutrinos. The first neutrino, VE bar, in the above reaction is an electron neutrino, antineutrino. Whereas the second one, V mu, Is a muon anti muon neutrino. The electron neutrino and the muon neutrino are not the same. They certainly have the same masses. The muon neutrino appears in reactions involving muons. Now the reaction that shows uh, uh, the decay of an anti muon, state in words what it decays into. Mu plus decays into E plus plus VE plus V bar mu. More leptons. In 1978, yet another member of the lepton family was discovered. The tau minus particle was observed by a team working on electron positron collisions at Stanford in USA. The Stanford team collided electrons and positrons together to produce a tau minus and its antiparticle, the tau plus. So, E plus, plus E minus provides tau plus and tau minus. For several months, these results were not generally accepted until a team working in Germany replicated the results. The tau particle has the same charge as the electron and the muon but it is much more massive, around 3500 times the mass of the electron. It seems logical to suppose that this new, heavier version of the electron has its own type of neutrino and antineutrino, the V tau and the V bar tau. These were finally detected in July 2000 by a team at Fermilab USA. The lepton family now has three groups within it, the electron and its neutrino, the muon and its neutrino, and finally the tau lepton and its neutrino. When all the three antiparticles are taken into account, there are 12 leptons and antileptons. These leptons have all these things in common. First, they are not affected by the strong nuclear force. They are affected by the weak interaction, and charged leptons are affected by electromagnetic force. They are all fundamental particles, which means that they are not constructed from another smaller particles. The three lepton generations are fermions, that is, they have the spin value of 1 over 2. Recent work has suggested that there may not be any other members of the lepton family, though no one has yet been able to explain fully why there are three types of lepton and why they should have the masses that they have. The Higgs boson gives the electron its mass, but may not be the cause of the neutrinos mass, which is very difficult to measure. The leptons and antileptons are summarized in the table. So the key ideas that we looked at, but before we go into that, um, there are still discussions about particles within particles. So experiments at CERN and elsewhere now suggest that there are only three generations of leptons. There may be no more elementary particles beyond the talk for us to discover. But what about the proton and the neutron? Experiments and theory were pointing to the fact that they were not fundamental particles. They had structure, the quest to reveal that structure is described in the next chapter. So the key ideas in this section, first, the leptons and their antiparticles, antileptons are all fundamental particles. Each of the three charged leptons, that is electron, muon and tau, has an associated neutrino which is also a lepton. Each lepton has an antiparticle and has an identical mass but whose other properties charge, for example, are opposite. Leptons are affected by weak interaction. Now let's look at um, another assignment which will be useful, and this is for making a case in discussion. Now, when physicists started research into the basic building blocks of matter, they had no clear idea of what, if any, useful applications would spring from their work, This is called blue sky research, which is research done for the sake of knowledge, rather than applied research, which aims to improve a particular technology. CERN in Switzerland is the home of blue sky research and is supported by funds from 21 European governments. This kind of research is among the most expensive in the world. But do we need this kind of research? Should the funds be used for things that are more immediately useful? So prepare to take a part in discussion about the sort of research that government should support. Do you want to fund CERN's hyper-expensive acceleration projects? So in terms of preparing for your discussion, you will have to consider some of the questions like, what are your starting points? Note down the attitudes and ideas you already have on a piece of paper. Take a long look at your assumptions. Try to sort them into statements of fact and statements of opinion. Then you look at the statements of fact. Do any need to be checked? Can you find the evidence to back up your facts? If you cannot, are you sure your fact is correct? Then look at your opinions. Can you unpick the reasons behind them? Since they are opinions, not facts, you will not be able to find something that will prove them to be correct. But you should be able to find some evidence to suggest that they are reasonable. Decide which of your opinions you feel strongest about. What are the things you are extremely unlikely to change? This is not always a bad thing. To believe in something is very strongly in very strongly is not wrong. But do recognize that a strongly held belief is not as strong in an argument as a simple fact. Finally, as well as deciding your strongest opinions, look for areas where you are uncertain or willing to be convinced. Where do you feel able to compromise? Ideas for holding a successful discussion. After you have assembled your thoughts and some evidence, you are ready to participate in a discussion. A few simple rules will help to keep the discussion to be productive. First, make sure you listen and check that you understand what people are saying. Ask questions like, so you're saying, and try to paraphrase what someone has said. They can correct you if you have misunderstood them. Hear what people are saying. People who listen carefully learn much more from discussions than people who talk continually. Remember that some opinions will annoy and irritate you. Do not let your feelings interfere with your thinking. Be prepared to learn and change your position on some issues. And when you agree with people, tell them. Try not to tell people they are stupid, even if they are. Insults rarely work as a way of convincing someone. Remember that discussions should be win-win situations. Even if you end up disagreeing with someone, you can learn something by understanding their point of view. Not every discussion is an attempt to convince someone that you are completely correct in every detail and that they need to change their ideas to match yours. And then finally, rounding off your discussion. At the end of your discussion, try to agree a statement that summarizes the opinions of the whole group. This might contain two lists. Statements that everyone can support. Statements most of the group can support.